I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Team Human is an ad-free listener-supported project made possible by teammates like Nikita Sidorov, Fraser McDougall, Darren Nelson, Benjamin Dueck, Matt, and hopefully you. Just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support to find the others who gain access to our Discord channel, my paywalled medium posts, archives of my collected work, and conversations with luminaries like Tim Leary and Terrence McKenna, as well as participation in our live Team Human salons in the Kibitz Room. See you in there. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, a chance to rethink the tools and technologies that are shaping our reality, recognize the patterns underlying what feel like novel changes, and retrieve the human cognition, empathy, and collectivism required to make sense and make peace with our shared condition. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, concerned netizen, media essayist, and McLuhan archivist, Clinton Ignatov. You're an embodied person in space, and we're sharing this space together. Let's explore this space together, and I'm going to grow closer to you faster by building a common world with you. Clinton is going to be helping us understand Marshall McLuhan and ourselves in the context of the media environments we inhabit and the metaphors we use to understand them. It's time to intervene on our own behalf. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. It's funny, one of the uh, questions I'm getting the most as I uh, tour for Survival of the Richest is, uh, what's your beef with billionaires? You know, like, aren't they allowed to spend their money however they want? If they want to build bunkers, they should be able to build bunkers. And I'm like, yeah. I guess they should be able to spend their money on bunkers if they want, but 
my problem is more with that they're earning their money in ways that then require them to spend their money on bunkers. In other words, the reason why most of these guys believe that uh, that they need to have bunkers or rocket ships or, or ways out is because the business practices that they're using to get the billions that they want to spend on their bunkers are themselves so bad. It's it's capitalism, exponential capitalism. The these desperate attempts at profiteering and monopolization in order to have enough money to escape the apocalypse, those are what render us more vulnerable to death and disaster in the first place. Like, I've been reading a lot of uh, Cory Doctorow's articles lately, and he wrote he wrote one thing about about Epson printers and how they uh, they're these models of Epson printers that are pre programmed to brick themselves, that is to cease to turn off forever after a certain number of pages, and they justify that it's for some little sponge that has to be replaced, and otherwise it would um, leak all over the table. Except there's no way to replace that little sponge, that little you know five cent or two cent um, sponge that would then uh, <laughs> make the printer as good as new. Um, no, instead you've got to buy a whole new printer and take the printer you have and throw it on a, on a toxic waste heap somewhere. But there's an executive who makes this inner calculation. Well, I can probably earn enough extra money selling these more printers in order to distance myself from the damage I'm creating, right? They think they can somehow with the profit stay one step ahead. Or John Deere. And I've come to believe this one tractor company may pose a more immediate and present danger to our lives than any of the top secret files Donald Trump stole or maybe sold to foreign governments. I mean, What Corey showed is that they've designed their tractors so they can't be serviced or reconfigured except by an authorized technician with the right computer codes. So let's leave aside for a minute the idea that that the company is arguing that farmers paying $600,000 for a piece of equipment don't actually own it, or that the company can refuse to fix a dissatisfied farmer's tractor unless they agree to a gag order about the company's practices, or that John Deere's remote kill switches give the company the ability to lock farmers out of their own tractors. It's a feature that the company celebrated by breaking equipment that was seized by Russia and Ukraine. And that sounds kind of cool. But the bigger problem here is the code John Deere uses to maintain all of this control over farmers' equipment. It's actually really insecure. As Dr. O puts it, he said, it's a dumpster fire of information security worst practices. He went to DEF CON last month and he saw a hacker named Sick Codes jailbreak a John Deere tractor live on stage. And what that means is that just as John Deere can lock out any farmer from their own tractor anywhere in the world remotely, a hacker anywhere in the world could lock virtually the entire American farming industry out of its equipment, right? That's because John Deere not only has machines that can be locked by a malicious hacker or government or terrorist or enterprising North Korean high school student, it also has a monopoly on American farm equipment because they've purchased or eliminated all the competition. So the company's business practices and the underlying business monopoly, they combine to make our agricultural system less safe and and way more 
brittle. So if the billionaires, the tech billionaires that I've been meeting are any indication, I'm guessing that John Deere executives, they have access to local farms with unlocked tractors or more likely older pre-computerized models or ones from overseas. Or if they're not thinking quite that far ahead, they're making what I've come to call the insulation equation. They believe they're earning enough extra money through these dangerous practices to buy and hoard food if and when the agricultural catastrophe happens. So, In order to protect one company's dominance over its own customers, as well as the obscene wealth of its biggest shareholders, American agriculture has been rendered open to this rather totalizing vulnerability or even a system-wide malfunction. So the only real source of resilience would be smaller farms that use alternative equipment or those who have gotten hackers to jailbreak their tractors in ways that don't get noticed by the John Deere mothership. And, you know, God knows what kind of security people coming to tell you you've broken your contract. And the longer term answer, of course, is is distributism or what we now call platform cooperative or worker ownership of equipment. So imagine if a farmer's cooperative owned John Deere or even a machinist's cooperative instead of shareholders who believe they're impervious to the to the the externalities of the business practices of this company. So it's not the technology itself that's the problem. I'm not critiquing technology. Rather, like the Luddites, I am a great fan of technologies that empower workers and small businesses and a critic of those that are designed to extract value from people and places in ways that render them more dependent on central authorities, less able to exercise autonomy, and more vulnerable to catastrophe. The the big difference today, the difference our technology-enthralled billionaires don't seem to get, is that the selfish decisions they are making don't just affect the workers, the customers, or the poor. They have system-wide repercussions, exacerbated by monopolies and the brittleness they engender. And the sooner they can be convinced there is no escape from the decisions they are making on all of our behalf the more they may start behaving like they, too, have skin in this game. Because even tech billionaires have to eat. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I've met 
Clinton Ignatov briefly a few times at panels and readings or uh, media ecology conference here or there, but I hadn't had the chance to really engage with his ideas until I someone forwarded me a link to an essay he wrote called Misreading Marshall, which he wrote on the occasion of the latest kind of uh, Marshall McLuhan revival and and misunderstanding. Uh, whenever someone writes a piece about Marshall McLuhan or saying, oh, I kind of rediscovered Marshall and I think maybe he was saying this, all these people from the right and left, they all chime in and say how awful Marshall McLuhan was, that he was a sellout or this or that. Kind of a lot of like what what people do to Timothy Leary, too. And uh, he wrote a really nice piece about Marshall McLuhan and and a few others. And uh, I was really kind of moved to see uh, someone engage with Marshall McLuhan, kind of the way I do with Neil Postman, as a person with with deep spiritual convictions and not some, you know, crazy uh, uh, techno-utopian, as people seem to misread him, but as a very concerned, uh, <laughs> concerned human. And Clinton is a concerned human as well. He's calling himself a full stack media ecologist, which means he he does a study of the humanities, but informed by very rigorous technical understandings of applied computer science, as well as history. Uh, connecting with us from Canada. He's really, uh, I, I think you'll find him as in- inspiring as I do. He's uh, 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 in some sense undereducated in the official ways, um, but he really brings the, for me, the, the true slacker ideal of rigorous thinking supported by any professional means necessary so that you've got the time to really do thinking on your own or with others in uh, contexts that maybe no one at the academy or elsewhere would let you do. So here's my friend, Clinton Ignatov. Hi, you've been making some nice waves, I would say, in the recent and latest McLuhan revival. It's always strange, I, I find, when one of these dudes in mainstream journalism, like in this case, uh, Ezra Klein, you know, it could have been Tom Friedman, Mm -hmm. could have been Paul Krugman, could have been, you know, anybody, any one of these folks going, oh, you know, I think McLuhan might have been right after all. And, you know, Mm -hmm. they come up and then they, they, they come up with a, with a nice, you know, good high school reading of McLuhan, and then some friggin' either libertarian asshole on the one end, or kind of Marxist person on the other end says, oh no, McLuhan was a horrible, overrated asshole who, you know, sold out to, I mean, my, the teachers with me at Queens, a lot of them are like, well, how can you teach McLuhan? He sold out to the advertising industry, he was a, a fan mm-hmm. of capitalism, his global village never happened, we're mean to each other and in each other's business, how could you even mm-hmm. and, uh, but the thing that's great about you you admit you've only really come deep into McLuhan lately is you've gone and kind of looked at what he's actually said and what he was doing and said ah, actually there's something very very else <laughs> going on here oh yeah I mean, so I guess I'm interested to know what what and you hinted it in some of the articles you've written lately. But you know what brought you? I, I was also I didn't go to McLuhan until I was in my my late 30s after I'd written two or three books on media. 
What brought you to to re-explore McLuhan so deeply? It's got to do with growing up a uh, digital native, as the term mm-hmm. is, right? But uh, sure, you know what? I got a computer in my house, some 46 laptop when when, when I was you know, five years old, six years old. And the way my mother would, would tell a story, oh, and then Clinton was lost to the world, mm. so to speak, right? And, you know, that's a, a melodramatic reading. But, you know, when you grew up your entire life online, you're definitely part of a different zeitgeist a different story of what's going on in the world a comment section but behind the scenes and now we all know that with everyone having smartphones and having social media but the internet was still undiscovered and a different planet from television right up until you know 2015 2016 2017 when slowly kids got on facebook and all these things i was around before then i was doing stuff before then and you know you could take for granted the news always gets the internet wrong the news are right uh People who watch TV have no idea what their kids are doing on the internet, right? And that's why we had this advice. Like, keep the computer in the living room so you can see what your kids are doing. And uh, never tell anyone who you are online. Never give away your identity. Don't tell people where you live. (laughs) Don't share personal information, right? Don't let anyone track you. Delete your browser cookies every day. And we'll watch out for software that that, that tracks you. Somewhere between, you know, 2005 and, and 2015, you know, this guy named Steve Jobs comes in and completely upsets the entire terrain of what we think a computer is, what we think the internet is. We get a whole new language for it, smart devices and social media. The the corporations who were trying to create the online experience in the early 90s until the World Wide Web kicked them in the pants, got their revenge and finally re- re- seized recentralization mm-hmm. of the net on a whole new uh, on a whole new generation and a whole new population and got and people like me who were you know pl- playing around on uh, you know, the something awful web forums or Tumblr or, or this wo- this web 1.0 era Wild West internet are now watching everyone else dump their whole lives and their personal facts online to feed the corporate machine and to feed the, the advertisers and uh, you know s- submit themselves to coercion. It's so funny. It's funny because what you're describing is, I mean, the same thing happened 20 years earlier in in a different way you know but we found the net in the late 80s early 90s we're on the well we're on this network that was really hard for other people to get so the public mm. then came into america online which was for the first four or five years at least this walled garden of stuff so they would they would dial in Go on AOL and look at, you know, AOL's version of Sports Illustrated or AOL's version of Time Magazine. They'd be there. Guests would go. It had nothing to do with our Internet. Then there was this moment when AOL put an icon on the top of their screen that basically was this picture of the world, like it was the net. And it's when the AOL plugged into the net. And then all of a sudden, our IRC channels, our Usenets, because there was no web yet, it was like mm. flooded with people basically looking for porn. Was Porn or money scams of some kind. The driving force of innovation in technology, as the myth goes. Uh, so it <laughs> seems. But it was wild. And it was because even at that moment, a lot of us who were old, like uh, a kind of, you know, cypherpunk, cyberpunk, crypto netty people were like, oh. Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how are we going to metabolize this, you know, a population of newbies that is larger than the actual population of the Internet? 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That netiquette and uh, good uh, netizenship went out the window yeah. in the nineties. We never quite uh, we didn't were able to tr- to train the un- the incoming people. But at least that was the internet. I mean, and the, yours is another one. Mm-hmm. Yours is like so. Then that internet culture was then was then further you know e- eroded or or ch- the whole landscape was changed. Once it was like, oh no, now this is a landscape. Not just for commercialization, but for extraction, control, uh, prediction, mm-hmm. and and influencing people. Absolutely. I mean, you can. The thing is, people um, who talk about social media without grounding it in the longer history of the internet, they're sort of floating, as McLuhan would say, in a figure without ground. They'll talk about, oh, this is what social media does to us, or or uh, or oh, the centralization is awful. But you know, then you gotta go back and read John Percy. Barlow in 2001 warning people about Microsoft's passport mm-hmm. system where you log into everywhere with your Hotmail address and they're trying to get everyone to to change their login s- system to be the Microsoft Internet Passport. Yeah. And they were just 10 years too early because now everyone logs into everything with their Gmail account or their Facebook account or their... right. I don't. I try not to. Like, the 90s cypherpunk underground scene, it's still there. There's still lots of people out there trying to protect their anonymity. They're just not the center of focus right. for for where the conversation is at, right? They're marginalized. And what you say, you know, that people were very focused on the figure in media. So you're looking at what is the net doing to us? What does social media do? It's like whatever the story is on the TV screen, just like today, you know, it's like there's Trump, there's climate change, there's mm-hmm. immigrants. Mm-hmm. These are all figures and and they're real, not to say they're not real, but and and in, in an interesting way, McLuhan mm-hmm. was inappropriately blamed for being a techno determinist, which would be someone who looks at here's the figure social media and look what it's doing to people. Here's the figure Figure, porn, yeah. and that's what it's doing to people. Where what McLuhan was really doing was trying to reintroduce ground, you know, media, what he mm-hmm. called media environments. So it's not the smartphone. Mm-hmm. It's let's look at the environment of the smartphone, um, which is both where it mm-hmm. came from as well as what it's doing, where, you know, what it's obsolescing and what it's flipping into. I mean, he was trying to to look at it in this other way. So all of this is going on. The, the, the net is changing. The media is covering it as figures. And what and, and, and you're walking in a bookstore and a McLuhan book flies off the shelf onto your head huh. what what <laughs> oh, okay. oh no 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 uh, uh i uh actually watching the social media world of uh what well, we can call them noobs or normies or whatever you want right the normalized people that are inside the skinner box of our social media commercial internet mm-hmm. who who buy a new iphone every uh year and feel accomplished for learning how to use their iPhone and conflate that with actual what I would call computer literacy because right. I'm a Linux nerd, right? right. Like, I'm taking apart my machine and fixing it. You yeah. got to get in there, get dirty. It took me years to understand computers, you know? And I still tease people who who conflate technological literacy with media literacy. It's like, I know a lot of people who understand machine language and still don't understand the impact of technologies on on human oh. psyche and culture. But that's a whole other story. But so what yeah. brought you to the mountain? Oh, just the horror of watching mainstream institutions and uh, and uh, start picking f- internet flame wars with uh, the, the underground scene of uh, outsiders who have usually comprised the internet of my uh, peer group. 
uh, you know, like, so let's say, if the Something Awful web forum people and the 4chan people, which is ancient internet history from 20 years ago that no one should care about, except that it's the origin story between, between what now we call, you know, like, the war between the ideologies that we label alt-right and, you know, like 4chan versus, right. you know, Twitter users or Reddit users, right? There's a long backstory and history to this stuff that people would rather learn from uh, an anthropology student whose narrative is done through their post-hoc research into this history than the people who lived through it, who are completely socially unacceptable, mm. right? And un unqualified, right? It's, it, it's a story of the anthropologist giving a report about the digital natives or the real natives right. of, a, of a society and getting it all wrong. And then the natives having no say in how the story actually happened because the cultural differences are too large. So I was trying to find words to, to explain all this. And uh, one night I was watching weird 80s movies and it was Videodrome, the Cronenberg film. Mm. And then it was Shock Treatment, which is a musical and uh, about a bunch of television possessed zombies staring at a game show's prices right style very psychedelic and i sort of had this epiphany i was like oh my god videodrome isn't that that McLuhan guy i gotta read him and i picked up the gutenberg galaxy uh -huh. fell into it because McLuhan was speaking my language mm. he was describing the world i was actually living in at a embodied sensory level of who i am and who all these people are and what's going on and what the tv's doing and how books are dying out and the internet was all text when i was growing up i learned how to type you get in big long conversations those conversations stick around yeah. forever the social me media world is a one a day thing conversations drop off tweets get old right like the, yeah. on reddit the, the threads are gone in a day or two you know well it's weird though it's both totally liquid and temporary in terms of its yeah. uh, traction and, and intellectual emotional staying power but it's absolutely permanent in terms of its ability mm -hmm. to come back and bite you in the ass when something you've said turns out to sound like something that was inappropriate. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Best of both exactly. worlds. Exactly. <laughs> Everything you do is being remembered and recorded and uh, and will be used against you in the court of public opinion. Right, even if you can't remember it 3 minutes later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so no, so groping for uh for language to describe, you know, the troubles of, you know, 2014, 2015, 2016, the meme wars and and beyond the ideological language and the ideological categories because there's a difference it seems like tribal affiliation is mutually exclusive but perceptions of what's going on are not hmm. McLuhan drew a lot on the cubist idea of trying to see things from all angles all at once and uh, he didn't believe that uh, that cribbing talking points from this side when they're right and then cribbing talking points from that side when they're right was a contradiction right. there's no contradiction in seeing things from multiple opinions but when you when you have to identify as something and join a tribe now start using talking points from the other side is a contradiction in your identity in your tribal affiliation now you're a double agent or or, or an infiltrator or uh, or subverting or or right so we all still want to have a place to belong we want to know who we are we want a label to describe ourselves but then that mechanism psychologically especially with the internet where you are the first thing social media wants you to do is pick a flag and pick a side and 
go follow all these people so that our algorithms can see who it is you follow and determine where you live in this weird abstract space of left and right and authority, right? These political compasses and, and, and all these games people play to figure out their identity and, and these psychometrics that they take, right? Uh, it, uh, but once people learn who they are in those terms, they can't broker any exchange or conversation with, with, with anyone from outside of their tribe. Right. And you felt like McLuhan saw this tribalism coming, certainly. Oh, oh, he saw it happening. I mean, he was reading people who were seeing it happening in the 20s and 30s when he was a teenager. Right. Uh, that's the thing. We, we've been doing this forever. I mean, McLuhan's writing in the 40s and 50s and 60s about this stuff because he's reading about small magazines and underground press style blog like publications from the 20s and 30s in England and in Europe, right? In literary reviews, right? right? So culture's been doing this for so much longer than we'd like to think. Yeah, and he's reading guys, I mean, on the one hand, he's reading guys like, you know, Mumford, you know, which who, mm -hmm. who had a lot of that sort of red state, blue state tribalism thing figured out in the, in the 10s and 20s. But then he's also reading like the weird old back and forth between people and I know it's even mentioning these names is trouble, but people like Belloc and Chesterton. Mm -hmm. And really, it is interesting. It is, you know, as you put it, it is like going back and looking at a really smart person's BBS or a blogosphere, you know, the way that blogs used mm -hmm. to kind of all comment on each other or the arguments that you could go back. And there's some of us who do like doing that, going back and looking at how the birth of an argument on Twitter and seeing the back and forth is, as a sort of tragedy yeah. or comedy of errors. These guys were doing that, whether it's Dewey and Lippmann or Chesterton and Belloc or, you know, Swift mm. and that they're having these, these yeah. really heated arguments about important important issues they just happen slowly because it was at the rate of print publication yeah yeah exactly which again is not often too bad right. right and of course the internet just recaps these things at a slightly faster scale over and over again you've got email threads on or, or um, message boards in the 80s and 90s and and usenets and and news groups and these things right so it's like we keep telling ourselves this story over and over again and we keep having these conversations and then the media changes and things right. get faster and do it over and over and over and over and over again and already by the 60s McLuhan's going oh my god this is too fast it's instantaneous it's all at once I know yeah he's describing his time but when you read him you think wow he's predicting our time because it feels like what he's saying is more true now than it was 40 50 years ago right right and that's the thing he's not this futurist but so the, the, the people read McLuhan to this day, or they talk, or, or a little bit of McLuhan, or about McLuhan, or they see one thing. Maybe they'll read the first five hundred words of his famous Playboy interview, and they'll say, "Oh, yeah. McLuhan is saying, hey man, it's all okay. TV's coming, hippies are coming, LSD is coming. It's all just fine, and commercials are <laughs> media too. Just chill out, man. Tune in, turn on, drop out." <laughs> I'm with Leary, you know, let's go to Woodstock, 
wise up, hip, get hip. And as I understand it, McLuhan is kind of saying the opposite, that McLuhan is is mm-hmm. jaw dropped, looking in horror at the loss of what, what he saw as almost medieval values, the commons, uh-huh. the handwritten manuscript, the thoughtful headspace of true literature, yeah. right? He's, he's in some yes. ways a, an arch conservative bemoaning. I mean, he goes all the way back to the bemoaning the Protestant Reformation and the printing press, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely he does. That's, and, and that's, that's so he was a rhetorician. And I mean that in the, in, in the classical sense of, of, of having studied Cicero and, and Seneca and, and like ancient pedagogy for, from Greece and Rome and, and the medieval ages about how to write sermons in the 1500s, right? So he's, he knows how to speak, how language is used to speak to the public. And he know and he's watching all of the um, thinkers of his generation share his sentiment of staring at horror at what the kids are getting up to nowadays and throwing away their books and running the drugs and stuff. And he knows that if, if, if he becomes a bitter, cran- if he remains a bitter, cranky old man, then he's going to get sidelined and written off. Right. If you want that story, go check out the obituary for Harold Rosenberg in the New York Times. He was a very influential thinker. He was important. He was a big art critic. He he explained uh, action painting and and modernism to the world. And then, as he started to uh, to to lament the state of art and and the consumerism and 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 the people selling out and the superficiality of it, the New York Times is like, oh, this is a bitter old man who's not with it. He can't get it anymore. He's all dried up, you know. Good riddance, right? And that was the public attitude to people who couldn't get with it. Right. And McLuhan realized, I got to get with it and talk to these people in their language. You got to meet people where they're at. It, it was a Christian at- attitude of being in the world while not being of it. And you got to be in right. this world and you, right. you got to be. So on the one hand, he's talking with hippies and going on the Today Show and hanging out with Leary. And on the other hand, he's at the University of Toronto having lunch with the brothers, with the monks yep. every day. You know, oh, yeah. it's like he's yeah. not hanging yeah. out with the with the TV scholars if there even was such a thing. But the, the thing I got to go back because you say you say McLuhan's a rhetorician, right? And I know our friend Mark Stallman would say, oh, no, or mm. would, right? He'd say, no, he's a grammarian. Right. Do you understand that? That's sort of the trivium yes. and these different things. And yeah, see, that's a big that's a big issue with McLuhan's scholarship is that one of the most important books for understanding him, his his Cambridge University doctoral thesis didn't come out till like 2008, mm. 2007. Yeah. And so and so and so people who have been studying McLuhan for for years don't have the story of where it all started. So McLuhan is a grammar is a grammarian in the sense that he knows how to read, how to read. He knows how to read, and that and that means literally read mm. because he studies poetry. But he knows how to read the book of nature, as they would say back then, which, which is he knows he has perception. Mm. Our senses don't merely reveal to us the world as it really is. Uh, our, you know, we learn to make sense of the world as constructivist theory would hold. Right? Like if you want to read Piaget or something, right? How is it that we learn to make sense of the world? We have to train our perception. Mm. It's a constant act of learning to see behind the illusions and see behind the superficialities and get to the bottom of things. And McLuhan 
worked very hard to tell people if you want to get to the bar if you want to train your perception stop looking at the superficial images on the screen and look at the fact that you're sitting alone in a room with a blinking box right if you want to get to the bottom of things stop stop paying attention to the content and say what am i doing here with this device that's you know this illusory device that that's you know tricking me right as a grammarian he's trying to incentivize people to learn how to read his books are complicated and hard to read to get you to slow down to learn how to read to how to feel the shape of what one word next to another word and what metaphors are and to see the metaphors that we use in our life that uh, mislead us from from getting deeper into what we're actually doing right and i guess and he so he and he would probably blame because the period he really the same period i get upset about is the shift from sort of medieval to renaissance or craft mm-hmm. to industrialism that he would blame that sort of industrial mindset from the 12th 13th 14th century that it turned yeah. reading and everything into its utility value so books became more like the instruction manual that comes with a with a piece of technology and you're reading yep. it for the facts or the recipe and it's like no 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 you don't know how to read you're you are sitting with these black squirrely swirly things that were put there by someone else next to each other to convey this let go yeah. be with the book you know <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. So you've got these books full of know-how and cynical or pragmatic step-by-step stuff. And then, oh, you you want to feel something? Here's a gushy romantic poem about flowers and trees mm. and all this the nice stuff. But the two are two completely different genres. That's what happened after uh, eventually McLuhan blamed the printing press. Yeah. But you're right. Um, Mc- he, he has got his great early essay that no one's read because it's in the archives here in Ottawa called um, Dale Carnegie, the American Machiavelli. And he rips into Dale Carnegie as as just the most monstrous thing that could have ever happened to to all the people he knows who are running around reading this best selling book, and he's going, "Oh my God, this is the most cynical, awful, dehumanizing approach to socializing." How to win friends and influence people? Is it, or, yeah. That's the one. Yeah. How to win friends and influence people? Right. That was that was atrocious to him, but he ties it back to Machiavelli and King Lear and Shakespeare, and this is just a repeat of what happened. At, at, right. This book that that reduces. Um, um, uh, how to be a prince to step by step instructions. Well, if if this right that depersonalize the monarch's relation to to their people into a right into a mm. cynical attitude, right? Pragmatic, yeah. m- machine like, right? It, it's the same yep. d- deal. That was his whole. I know, yeah. but so so in some sense, so McLuhan is in some ways the original member of Team Human, right? Looking at the the anti-human effects of uh, I- industrialized technology and new forms mm-hmm. of media and, and and certainly arguing none of these new forms of media necessarily have to do this if we understand what the medium if we understand the messages of the media that we're using then we can mm-hmm. uh, adjust accordingly and titrate them and introduce them in a more conscious way but so here he is the original digital humanist and he ends up somehow on the masthead of Wired magazine as the patron <laughs> saint of a magazine whose very purpose was to take the hippie uh qualities of early Mondo 2000 psychedelic digital technology and repattern and reconform them for the market, for market free market mm-hmm. libertarianism. How does that mm-hmm. happen? How, how, 
how does how does he get seen as the the day glow advertising corporatist patron saint of the 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 techno libertarian techno solutionist uh, Wired magazine? Well, he was playing a fine line by <laughs> trying to speak to the kids in their own language and and be value neutral. Mm. So he's trying to ex- explain the the kids in the go go boots at the dance floors to, dancing to uh, to the Supremes, right? You can see. F- footage of this and clearly he doesn't want to be be there but he's going oh look 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 at the way the children are inhabiting their own little private world as they as they dance around in their heads in their own pod cut off from everyone else right all right just extremely value neutral right so he, he's not he's not saying it's good he's not saying it's bad he's just describing what's going on right which is dangerous i mean mm. i tried to do in in early q early q would say oh look this is the realization of a kind of an interactive novel you know finally people are getting to do a fantasy role-playing game where they're assembling data they're doing the yes and architecture of of comedy and you know if you're content neutral the activity itself is interesting. So how do then I would pivot to so how do we, you know, get them to do this or help them do this in a way that's constructive? You know, how do we incorporate some of this into our progressive and leftist thinking? And but but there's almost no way to do it without everyone saying, Oh no, Rushkoff's praising Q. It's like, oh uh, you know. Or, <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. You you didn't come out of the gate to disavowing and 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 you know yeah exactly that's McClune that's the clip the trap McClune is falling to in the 60s mm. and uh what happened was he he got translated into French and that became McLuhanisme the way the zeitgeist over there rolled he ended up being the the naive optimist compared to the more realistic Jean Baudrillard who anyone who's seen the Matrix films, you know, you, yeah. see the, the, uh, you can see Neo's got uh, Baudrillard's uh, simulations and simulacra in his desk, right? Uh, B- Baudrillard's is the cynical re- realist against the naive, optimistic, techno-utopian Mc- McLuhan, and that's just how the story rolled. And so within our culture, that's sort of how McLuhan is remembered for everyone who doesn't try to read his is very difficult to read books. So here you got you got Baudrillard. I mean, God bless him. He did great things. Baudrillard and the and the sort of the semioticians of postmodernism mm-hmm. in France, calling McLuhan mm-hmm. abstract. Right. <laughs> exactly. Like, oh, pardon me. So here's the guy who say, "Wait a minute. Return to the ground. What's happening on the ground? What's happening in your hands? What is the television doing to the neurons in your eye? You know, different from what mm-hmm. the book did to the neurons in your eye. How does it? You know, it's, yep. it, he couldn't be more on the ground, literally ground, getting blamed for being the abstract. It's it's so you know, and, and that's why I'm in one of my greatest honors was I was at um. Uh, what was it? That conference they do in um, uh, Ars Electronica. I, I was there at, mm. and I did some talk. And then uh, Manuel Delanda is doing this interview of Paul Virilio on a big screen who's Ooh. coming in. And and Manuel Delanda says, so what do you think of these sort of media virus ideas of uh, Douglas Rushkoff? And Virilio goes, Rushkoff? He's an idiot. And so he didn't know <laughs> I was there. But I was so honored that Paul Virilio even knew who I was and what I was doing, but <laughs> but but as you describe it, I'm like, yeah, it's that same thing. They they the 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 French kind of postmodernists see this sort of analysis or misinterpret this analysis as 
acquiescence to the decadence of these new forms of media rather mm -hmm. than our effort to to kind of forge a, a sense of continuity and pattern recognition so we understand no new new media is not novel it's always mm -hmm. new media it's you know yeah. it's just yeah. it's another new media you know and that's not accepting. It's not value neutral, if anything. And this is, again, where McLuhan gets into trouble or Postman or me. It's religious. It's spiritual. Oh, uh, it is. It is. You have to take it that seriously. I mean, this is something that Camille Pallion was nailing 20 years ago when she's pointing out the Hollywood star system and the rock and roll uh, cults as as a revival of paganism mm. it's this idea that the, the the way we turn people into icons for worship for fandoms uh, right the entire fan culture situation is is a very is a very interesting powerful force in our lives and uh and uh again once again i'm i'm trying to describe what's going on without making value judgments one way or another and uh, uh, right it as a lifelong Star Trek fanatic, right. you know, uh, well, this, you know? So but it's yeah, like, but I'm thinking, you know? and that's where you get back to. It's like all religions are fine as long as you don't actually believe in them, right? So <laughs> you know, it's sort of, it's sort of like even all these fandoms. You could, I could be a a Miley Cyrus fanatic and that's fine and put posters all over my office and listen to her music all the time and as long as I understand that. It's my, I'm creating Miley Cyrus, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. Well, I mean, there's so much money to be had by uh, by incentivizing uh, super fans yeah. into buying and, and owning every little thing that it's 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 a very difficult psych cycle to uh, to change. McLuhan is very hard to read for a completely different reason that the postmodernists are very hard to read. Mm. The postmodernists, as you pointed out, they've got this this idea of semiotics or sign systems, all words point and signify things and then and then you know here's how these words form structures and here's how these structures unconsciously shape our perception and it works almost like math right it's schematic yeah it, it, it's work it's just Very. like the digital humanities people can say i'm going to count the number of thou's versus the number of thines in Macbeth. yeah and it's their digital humanism or digital digital humanity it's there whereas this other stuff McLuhan stuff is much more it's uh, squirrely <laughs> yeah 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 because he, he he goes back to the middle ages and what he's retrieving there is analogy and metaphor and, and a nuanced sense of how everything we say is a metaphor anyways and so he's making new m m metaphors that's the poetic method is to find new new ways to juxtapose any given word with any other word and see what meaning you can release from these mm. juxtaposition of words McLuhan is a he studies poetry and he wants people to look at literature and to read word by word by word and to milk the juxtaposition of word by word by word and to choose every individual word they use carefully for its sonority i mean if every advertisement uh out there was just buy our stuff it's good we wouldn't need to pay advertising executives and creatives to come up with slit with with jingles and slogans and catchy phrases that stick in in your head the best poets all sold out to advertisement as uh, as the socialist Charles Fourier was complaining in the 
early 1800s, right? Our poets are are writing for these uh, commercial enterprises to explain st- stock prices of, you know, oh, yeah. pork bellies are flying through the roof. Like, no, they're not really flying through the roof. Who who hired this this poet to, 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 to try and sell people to, to affect the commodities markets, right. right? And when you talk about the juxtaposition of words next to each other, you are also describing what the, the folks do, uh, who do neuro-linguistic programming and behavior design. Uh-huh. It's all about how Ooh. do you take two words? You know, I remember the NLP people came to me when I, when I came up with media virus. They said, oh, mm-hmm. you've done it. You've done it. That's a great neuro-linguistic programming thing, like smart drugs and all those <laughs> ones. You, know, you take yeah. two words and throw them together. Global Village was another one and it yes, creates like yes. a new socket in the brain but the problem is that social media there you go social social media, media. What a, ooh. Ooh, exactly ooh. <laughs> um but but when you when you when that craft is is co-opted by behavioral finance people and or advertising or marketing then well, I mean, I hate to say then we're all lost, but it's it's again, it's just surrendering the, the development of our collective cultural psyche to the needs of the market. So it's gonna it's gonna steer it in a very particular way. I mean, did McLuhan critique capitalism per se exactly, or did, was it more just the industrialism and and and? Uh, uh, efficacy well he was saturated in in the uh literary magazines of of the 30s and 40s and um if you read these magazines most of them are available for free online if you if you read the partisan review they're full of marxists uh debates and dialogues and and analyses so like he never used the word capitalism though i never see him critiquing capitalism. i couldn't find it he, either he'll decry he'll decry the commercial attitude the consumer attitude the machine like you know or like he'll describe everything that marxists complain about in their critiques in terms that clearly differentiate him from the tribal allegiance and i think that's got a lot to do with what i was saying before where where he he didn't want to have or own a label as an identity and he didn't want to signal tribal affiliation with anyone and so if you can and the poet's job is to take people's perceptions and to, and give them new language to break out of their habits of thinking and so he was sympathetic i'm sure to lots of 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 marxist critiques but he didn't think that the that people were alienated because of their relation of their dissociation from their relation to the value of their work. You know, he 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 didn't see the fluctuating right uh, the fact that the price w- was divorced from the value of the labor or or whatever it is that uh, Marx and Engels said alienated people. That wasn't his thesis. He said reading books was alienating pe- people from their senses. He he he, he was blaming art people's relation to their media for so so i think he didn't share the theoretical underpinnings behind marxism as an explanation for what it was marxism was diagnosing he was looking at it from a different axis right and if he would had an economic perspective it was uh you know the thing I've been writing about the last ten years: distributism. Yeah, it came again. Came from the Catholic Church. This idea that no business needs to be bigger than it should be to conduct its business. You don't grow for growth's sake, and the idea that workers should own the means of production, which is not exactly Marxist. It's I mean, it, it, Marx would would nod to it, but you know when the when the popes came up with it, they were thinking of it as an answer to both capitalists and Marxists, and to what as to what is a proper way of 
of doing business that, well, as long as the workers own the means of production, as long as they own their tools, then let them compete with each other and make as much money as they as they want, because they're not being abused by someone who owns, you know, who owns the factory and hires them. It's, he was basically arguing mm. for platform cooperatives, you know, you know <laughs> 60 years yeah. before the, the term was invented. So he got yeah, out of yeah, that. Absolutely. But but who was it that wrote that really mean tweet about about McLuhan after the Ezra Klein thing? So Ezra Klein comes and does a, a pretty gentle and and I would say fairly accurate assessment of you know McLuhan as an important uh, as an important McLuhan postman. Uh, he liked mm-hmm. Nicholas Carr. Um, I think he might have might have mentioned Borston's the image in there. I mean, there's a lineage of yeah. folks of which I would argue we're both you know included, even if we're less you know famous or smart. Yeah. You know, that we're we're part of this movement to understand new technologies and media in the context of a flourishing uh, interhuman. Uh, society and sensibility. Mm-hmm. So, and and Ezra Klein sort of says, "Oh, I guess I was wrong. This stuff's kind of important. Media do have biases. Ah, uh, okay, mea culpa. And and I'm going to hop on that intellectual bandwagon, maybe a little too obviously or somehow uh, or self servingly, mm-hmm. but 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 still, it's all good. And then who was it that said McLuhan sucks? Yeah, no, Stephen Pinker, yeah. the Harvard University linguist, uh, uh, cognitive scientist. He jumps out in the blue and just does uh, and." Uh, you know, rather just dismisses McLuhan as uh, as sympathetic to fascism and uh, mysticism, and uh, and and then Michael Shermer from the skept I believe a skeptic may- magazine jumped on board. Oh yeah, you know McLuhan. I you know I bet you Daniel Dennett could put him straight or something like this. And then I know, which is interesting. So it's it feels like I mean, and I write about this in in my new book, in Survival of the Richest. There's this scene when I'm in this having this big argument with uh, Richard Dawkins and some of those scientist guys, mm. where they're calling mm. me like a spiritualist and a moralist for believing that there is some you know spiritual dimension to our our reality. That there's stuff going on here that can't quite be explained purely in terms of mechanistic scientism that there's other meaning mm-hmm. systems we can use and they're just slamming mm-hmm. me as if i'm the enemy of the of the of the state and the future and reality i'm a crazy superstitious yeah. uh, witch doctor and it felt to me <laughs> like that's what they're angry at McLuhan about most of all is that uh, am i allowed to even say this uh, is that he believes in god right Mm. <laughs> cardinal, cardinal sin right uh yeah. yeah i grew up in the rational um online right the rational atheist commu- yeah. community which is mostly comp- comprised of Am- of americans who had to escape their crazy evangelical parents yeah. and move to the coast and now they're online processing their their you know uh, uh how dumb creationist y- y- young earth stuff is and yeah anti- evolutionary stuff so now in between their ayahuasca sessions yeah 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 right <laughs> right exactly exactly right right everyone's trying to find themselves so i understand the rational community very yeah. well innately of having been a part of that for for years but what ends up happening is you end up externalizing uh just in the same way that uh, that economics can uh, or a a business can externalize the environmental damage they do on their balance sheet, right? Mm. That the cost get uh, paid for by someone else, so they turn a profit, right? Highly rational, um, scientific, logical, atheistic thinking of in that degree 
ends up externalizing people um, who uh, who embrace metaphor and see resonances and coincidences everywhere as mental illness or or uh, in the French sense of the word schizophrenia because because the French have a different relation to Sigmund Freud than the English do. The uh, in America, Freud is strictly right. Uh, psychoanalysis is strictly for doctors and the medical profession and the, you know the field of psych psychiatry but in France it's you know artists can study Freud and they can talk about schizophrenia and activists mm. can do this right that's the history that Sherry Turkle goes into in her early stuff right what's interesting when you talk about about, about it like that it feels like you know that that McLuhan's truest kindred spirit would be like Robert Anton Wilson you know <laughs> yeah, someone yeah, who no. says yeah is Sirius the star actually doing this to me well Maybe not, but a lot of people kind of think so, and it's a really interesting way of mm -hmm. understanding the world, you know. Or, or even I don't want to get McLuhan in even more trouble than he already is, but but even Aleister Crowley, you know, who's who's saying uh -huh. yes, but no, but maybe, but. <laughs> Hey, in for a penny, in for a pound. McLuhan was studying the modernists, and the modernist poets, uh, like, look at W.B. Yeats, was seeing spirit mediums, and, right, they were uh, you know, typing right, on their they thing, were but, all, yeah, 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 they're all a bunch of occultists, these modernists, and, and, and in McLuhan's doctoral thesis, uh, that I already mentioned, uh, uh, he, he was, uh, analyzing alchemists in the 16th century as grammarians who are trying to study the book, the book of nature, the same way that, you know, Pliny the Elder did, like, medieval science was all alchemy and trying to find the metaphors and the analogical proportions to square the circle and find, and find, you know, like, golden ratio hermetic uh -huh. stuff, right? He, he was all about that as it was being used by poets to make their poet to create their poetry and create balance and proportion and find the just the perfect analogy that so that T.S. Eliot and James Joyce could go and do all these amazing poems and books in the 20s and 30s mm. that he loved so much right so so McLuhan was neck deep in that stuff as an artistic practice and then I think around the 50s he's like oh these guys are taking this seriously aren't they oh my god I gotta yeah. change my approach <laughs> right, right that's what keeps oh happening oh my god these, these are a bunch of these are a bunch of occult mystical people I mean, they're trying to create a world, like, like some sort of weird ass religion oh my god right and and so you know he, he sort of like straightened up and sobered up and said what am i going to do about this well we let's analyze how the medium of delivery for our as again as camille pallia puts it the pagan revival of hollywood and fan culture and and the the sense of religious communion that we get from participating in the zeitgeist it's uh you know he when he says the television creates or the electric environments because we could talk about you know the radio in the 20s and 30s right he creates mass man right he creates uh humans into a mass he's really he's really talking about you know the catholic mass the sense of of spirit and communion building and the melting into the group that uh goes on at any given rave when any, when, when people are doing molly nowadays right just but but the, the search for Involvement that we get from now picking up your smartphone and feeling like you're tapped into the current thing and you're not missing out. He saw all of that in religious terms because of the way he saw these techniques being used in these uh, senses, uh, like you said. So yeah, it's, it, it, it's all it's all part of one story in his head. But these are things that when we talk about them, we fracture them up and it doesn't add up within a rational framework where we try to find connections and we don't feel the resonances, man, that he was trying to right. get us to develop a sense for. Right. We didn't get the vibes that he was putting down. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> to, you know, 
not that everyone has to know pick up McLuhan and read him today. Uh, what I'm wondering from a from a, a human and experiential perspective, I mean, how do you move through the world differently as a result of the the insights that you've kind of gathered from his work? And how do we, you know, in, mm. in other words, I'm interested in that. I mean, for me, when, when I tried to describe it at the end of Present Shock, you know, uh, because Present Shock is a very McLuhan-esque sort of book, looking at what's happening right now and the collapse of time and all. And at the end, I, I start talking about pattern recognition as sort of one way to move through it and to mm. sort of move through the world with a softer focus. In other words, rather than living in this in a strictly expedient kind of cause and effect reality, start being open to other causes, right? <laughs> you know, and, yeah. And, and a softer, sort of have a softer approach and listen to people and, and listen to people differently, not just to what they're saying, but really be there. And if you're in communion with others, if you connect and establish rapport with others, another kind of communication happens, whether or not you agree with them. And, you know, those were sort of where I, I'm, I'm wondering for you, particularly as you were, you know, deeper into the tech and from the next generation, of you know, I was a TV kid mm. who who migrated mm. to the net. You know, you know, again to the chagrin of parents who thought I was going to become a Dungeons and Dragons, you know, master as my job. <laughs> you know, people hated computers back. They really had no idea what was what was coming. That's the way I'm I'm, I'm alive today, as I could see at least that much. But um, how do you move through the world with a, a more McLuhan-esque sensibility, and how does that uh, uh, help you on a day-to-day sort of level? Yeah, the way that you I've learned to relate to people is is to share a common scene, a common environment that we live in. You don't un- understand someone by trying to understand them. That's that's a big problem. We we have to <laughs> oh, what's your type? Are are you an ENFP or INTJ? <laughs> and people and, say oh, that is all this the person time. high in agreeableness or <laughs> oh are are you a Capricorn, right? Everyone's right. trying to understand people by figuring them out. When the what you do is you stand beside someone. And you survey the scene, the room you're in, what the people are doing, mm. right? You build a common sense of what's going on around you because I'm an embodied person in space. You're an embodied person in space and we're sharing this space together. Let's explore this space together and I'm going to grow closer to you faster by building a common world with you by mm. looking at what's out there. I'm not focusing on you. We're both focusing on the world together. Right, which is the opposite of the Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people, is the is to be like Clinton or Trump. And when people describe what it was like to be with them, why they're so charismatic, they would say, oh, he looked at me like I was the only thing in the world. He was totally focused on me, on me, <laughs> you know? Whereas the kind of friends I love being with are the ones where I no longer exist. Right. Where I disappear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and now you're free to do anything or you're free to go along with with stuff. But right. then you can lead somewhere, too, because you're leading somewhere. You're not being yourself. You have a place to go and right. you can bring your friend with you. All right. In, in speech and in thought and in, in, in tentative. Yes. And so and so that's what the focus on the environment means to me. It's it's mm. uh, you know, I don't want to go go around slapping smartphones out of people's hands and demanding that they read Richard Stallman and go send money to the Free Software Foundation, even though I think they should. Yeah. <laughs> I, right, yeah. right, right, right. Exactly. But, uh, but, no, I gave I'm, all the royalties uh, of one of my books. I gave it to <laughs> Free Software Foundation, you know. It's like, <laughs> Wonderful, yeah, yeah. right? Right, like, like, like that, that's what I believe in. But right. then again, if that was... 
if that was my tact, I, I, I'd be a real misanthrope for all the people who, who, who don't right. want to hear it. Right. Instead it's, you know, where are we? We're, we're sitting at a bar. Yeah. What's going on. Right. And I feel like focusing on the environment you're in is sort of a return to embodiment mm. and focusing on, I don't want to say going like one level abstracted because you're, you're right. Like my media ecology, I've been trying to find my own words to, to uh, throw together to try to be po- poetic. So I called it full stack media ecology because in the long run, people need to be able to go down the computer stack from the high level of manipulative stuff that changes every week, every time Google or Facebook changes on their, their software to be easier to use or yeah. more addictive or anything, right? You need to be able to go down the stack to the fact that these things used to be called personal computers because you owned it and you told it what to do and it's a programmable device. And your book, Program or Be Programmed, yeah. right? You you own this device and you should be programming it. And I don't me- even mean learning how to code. I mean mm. at least choosing the software you use and not having to use the app from the top 10 list. The same right. way you shouldn't have to read whatever book is popular on the top 10 list. I worked in a bookstore for five years. I've right. seen a lot of top 10 list books come and go, right? And here I am in the library trying to chase chase down books right. that have been out of publication right. for 70 a, years right right but it's about more than than technological or content uh, uh liberty it's about cognitive liberty right it's not a matter yeah. of just which programs you use and letting them pick that but the fact that now you're using programs that are programming you you know i don't you don't yeah. know how, <laughs> it's it's the, the device is operating the human Absolutely, absolutely. And and I mean, that's something I, I, I sort of always saw everywhere tacitly, but then how do you approach that humanely and, and without, uh, mm. right? I think a lot of the misanthropes on the internet who get cast as extremists in, 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 in any direction just walk around and think... Every- Everyone around them is an idiot. Right. That's what being a, a misanthrope is, right? Every you think everyone else is an idiot who doesn't know what's going on. Don't they see what's going on? Oh my god, I can't even stand these people. I can't hear I can't listen to them talk. They're so every single sentence they say is wrong, and I'm just gonna give up on it, right? And that's trying to analyze people, what's wrong with people, and that's trying to think in in terms of conceptual models, and my model's right, your model is wrong. And it's you're not present in those moments. You're fighting a a, a dialectic in your head. The idea of my ideas are right, your ideas are wrong, right? This this form of arguing where you never meet the other person either in the place where they're at or you're never really talking to them. You're talking a straw man of them in your head. You're just projecting, right? So why you need all three, grammar, rhetoric, and dialectic, hmm. right? I, I can claim McLuhan was a rhetorician because he was that too. He was a grammarian right. too. He was a dialectician too. Or you need all three. <laughs> you could be more than one thing. We Whoa, could, we man. Could, you mean like I could like put on a Mets hat in the morning and a Yankees hat in the afternoon and still be the same person? Uh, depends who made it to the playoffs. <laughs> <laughs> but oh yeah, why not? Oh know? my God. I know, but that's back to Crowley. Crowley. Alistair Crowley said to buy two rings and have one ring when hmm. you want to manifest like your evil personality and another ring when you want to manifest the benevolent one and just see mm. and see how you are, see how you're different in the, over the course of the day. It was funny. But what, what I didn't ask is, so what do you, what do you do? How do you stay alive? What's your, what's your like career oh. and what are your sort of ambitions uh, with your work moving forward? Right. This is all a hobby for me. This is uh, something this that I like living? to do life publicly. It's a, life itself? <laughs> life is a hobby. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm going to return to my stasis pod as, as soon as we're done. 
<laughs> no, oh heck, I sell beer in Ontario. I it's it, it's a fun part time job. You sell beer? How, how do you sell it? In a in a bar, or do you bring it to places? B- bot- bottle or can? I work at the beer store. We I, I I work in one of the greenest companies in the world. We we recycle all all the packaging that we sell. Wow. So you got it as a job. You didn't start the beer store. You got a job. No, I didn't. Oh no. I, I what I'm saying is that like I just work a humble uh you know minimum wage job and then I do this on the side. I'm not in school. I got no prospects, but I'm an internet junkie who's been watching what's going on and I'm like what what can I do with my magical machine that connects me to everyone and everywhere and gives me all uh access to all the libraries in the world. Well, I can go study this thing in my spare time and become good at it and then, and reached out to random people and talked to them. So I'm networking at scale, but I'm not going any, anywhere with, with it. Like, it's just, it's just something fun I do when I get home from work and get home from the bar. It's li- If I took this seriously, this whole, like, hey, let's go, like, email famous people and tell them what I think. I, I was thinking at the time, like, I could get, like, full of myself. I'm not, I, I'm a chill guy. I got slack. I'm pretty casual. I, I just take it easy, right? So, yeah. yeah, it's it's fun to see the opportunities that are open in the world. But as of yet, I don't feel particularly, you know, I sort of don't like the the ideological saturation at universities right now and don't yeah. feel like paying money to go get to go get demoralized. Right. You go get demoralized so that you could then teach others in a system that's trying to demoralize them. Yeah, it's yeah. tricky. Yeah. I mean, luckily, yeah. there are, you know, I, I do feel there's more room for what are we citizen scholars now? I right. mean, you're obviously welcome at the, you know, the media ecology association and all those McLuhan esque places. And, you know, Bob Logan is up there somewhere in, in Canada yeah. and he started a second sort of media ecological journal. They have explorations and they have new explorations yeah. and yeah, very new, new, new explorations. <laughs> very yeah, new yeah. explorations. It, <laughs> the field is burgeoning. It's yeah. blossoming right now. Yes, absolutely. And so it's an exciting field to watch and to be a part of and i'm just yeah. gonna keep writing and keep talking to people and keep networking and oh, see yeah. what happens you're and... always welcome in one of my classrooms thanks Doug. it'd be very fun if you're even in new york or get you down i'll bring you and and expose my uh my students to a uh bartending McLuhanite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'd love that so thank you clint for clinton for being on on team human it's it's great to have a a, a citizen scholar who is modeling you know what to me is the ultimate the, the lifestyle that that I aspired to when I saw Rick Linkletter's slacker for the first time. I was like, oh, my God, you could just live a life, learn stuff, talk with other people who are learning stuff. And what more is there? How much better can it get? So um, thank you. I, you're, you're, you're an inspiration on, on many levels for me. Thanks, Doug. I'm happy to talk. Hit me up <laughs> at any time, and that's to you and anyone listening. All right, then we'll see you. We'll see you very soon. And thank you for being on Team Human. Our guest today was Clinton Ignatov. You can find out more about him by going to concernedmedicine.com or coming to teamhuman.fm and clicking on the links, where you can also become a supporting member of the team. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.